everyone and welcome to episode 276 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. And Alison, of course, is the awesome author of the Mapmaker Chronicles series and the Adaban Cipher series. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, in case you're new to this podcast. And we are thrilled to bring this to you every single week. How are you, Al? Oh, I'm, thrilled. <laughs> I'm thrilled, Val, is how I am. Entirely yes. thrilled. What have you been doing in the world of Al, in the world of writing and publishing? The world of Al. Um, well, the world of Al has been a very busy place. We are rapidly approaching the end of term one, and for that we can all be eternally oh, yeah. grateful. Mm. Um, so, as you know, my youngest uh, is having his first year at high school this year, mm. and I had forgotten because um, his brother is three years older. So there has been a little window of, of you know, relief from the pain of yeah. year seven. Um, mm. But the first couple of terms of year seven are incredibly, um, you know difficult for 12 year olds so uh, we've just been getting through that and so we're at the point now where we're nearly there um, and that it's basically just been my whole last week has just been all about managing um, so you know I do actually do some work occasionally mm-hmm. but mostly it has just been managing my children from one end of town to the other I've got you know the sporty one doing footy and basketball and who knows what else and uh, book boy has been on the radio twice, uh, has a gig coming up. And so I've been, you know, mummaging. I've been in my mummager role, basically. Wow. Wow. I know. That's that's a full-time role. In fact, you're probably doing two full-time roles because the people across the road, they employ a mummager. And in fact, they employ two mummagers. They do have four children. And one mummager is the regular mummager. And then they've got basically like, we call him the sports nanny. And that's all he does. He just he's got a van and he takes them surfing and he takes them like I don't know. Or just ferries them around to the various to the yeah, various sporting just, activities. They're always piling th- things and equipment and themselves into the van and he's taking them places. So they've got two momages, which is very lucky of them. <laughs> well, it's one of those things because the boys have started joking, they're calling me calling my car the Mooba. And they're all like, um, you know, can I take the mover to blah, blah on Wednesday afternoon or can can the mover pick me up from blah, blah on Thursday night? Um, so we had to have a bit of a chat about treating mum like an Uber taxi, like an Uber <laughs> driver. There had to be a discussion about that, a little moment of, you know what, we might need to reset some boundaries here. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, it does. I mean, you know, like you, you, don't, you don't have to go far to find five million, you know, parents um, you know, there's Dubas out there too, and obviously there's sports nanny Ubers as well um, <laughs> out there just doing the same thing. It's, you know, it's just when kids can't drive but they want to go places a lot, you end up ferrying. It's what you do. I have so. a question. When you are being a mover, <laughs> a mover. I'm a mover. and you're off at, you know, soccer practice or whatever, do you, like my tendency would be then to get on my phone or iPad and do some work or to do some writing do you do that or do you watch the soccer game? <laughs> do I watch the soccer game? <laughs> well, it's one of those situations where when I'm at practice, I'm, mm-hmm. I work, I do whatever, unless it's basketball because okay. there's a couple of parents that go to basketball that I really like 
Um, so mm. we sit there and we chat because it's good catch up. Some mm. of these people, like you, you get to see the same faces at the, you know, at the, in, you're in the age group, right? So you yeah. get to see similar people at similar things if your kids yeah. cross over in sporting interests. Um, and so these particular couple, um, we have a crossover with both of our sets of children because we have the musicians, you know, in the older area. So I see them at gigs a lot. Um, and then I also see them at the sporting fixtures with the, with the younger ones. So um, if there's, you know, I do like to be social occasionally. I don't like to sit by myself in isol- splendid isolation at all times. So I do make time to be social. Um, but, yeah, but mostly like for, you know, footy practice and things like that, I, I will do some work. Um, and But the games I watch. You can't not watch the games, Val. It's like there's like a parenting rule that says you have to watch the games. Oh, okay. All so right. I do my best. I do my best to, to look interested in, you know, the various things. Yes, I understand. Mm. All right. Mm. But there is some writing opportunities. In oh, yeah, game. particularly for practice. But, you know, yeah. you can't you can't miss the one goal of the year because course, you were looking at your course. phone, you know. Yes, it's like definitely. Unspoken yeah, rule. Anyway, we have talked far too much about mummaging and and it is actually, this is a podcast about writing, everyone. It is, it is. So we want to give a big shout out to a very cool writer called The TJ Edwards. The TJ Edwards, who kindly has left us I know TJ Edwards. Yes, we know TJ Edwards. He's in our listener community and he's awesome. And he's entitled it The Best Podcast for Aspiring Authors and Writers. And he has said, I searched high and low for a decent podcast to listen to only to find many monotone podcasts where I had trouble absorbing the information. The playful banter between Val and Al makes this podcast much more engaging and it feels natural for the listener. You know, that's because we talk about momaging and stuff. Um, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not what TJ is tuning in for just Yeah, I'm sure. Sorry. I've learned so much and managed to meet Alison at two events and Val when she generously opened up some mentoring time to listeners of the podcast. For these two, writing isn't just something they do, it's something they love to share and their generosity extends beyond the podcast as they constantly boost those around them to greater heights. Thanks for everything, ladies. You're both legends. Oh, my goodness, I'm all warm and gooey. I'm a legend. Oh, my goodness. I'm really all warm and gooey. I have all the feels right now. All the feels, heavens. Mm. I'm just getting it. I'm going to get myself a T-shirt made. Hashtag legend. Yeah. <laughs> you watch the boys try the move a move on me while I'm wearing a hashtag legend yeah, T-shirt. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> you should see the T-shirt my partner just got. It's um. It says, I do all my own stunts. <laughs> <laughs> You should probably get one of those too, I think. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to our competition this week. We have 10 double passes to Burning, thanks to Palace Films, which is in cinemas 18th of April, based on a story by Haruki Murakami, Korean master Lee Chang-dong's remarkable new thriller, Burning, was the most acclaimed film of Cannes. Set, setting a record for the highest ever score achieved in the Screen International's prestigious critics poll. Novelistic in scope, grandeur and impact and featuring three remarkable performances, it's a gripping psychological study of thwarted love, ambition and obsession. Oh, okay. Well, you could win mm. one of 10 double passes. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win and entries close on the 15th of April. All right, Al, now, 
Are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> Hashtag so ready, Val. Excellent. So ready. So do you watch Will and Grace? No. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, okay. no. Well, I love Will and Grace. I think it's hilarious and I love the new season that is that's currently out. Well, it, it just had its finale, season two of the of the, you know, regeneration of Will and Grace. And I was watching it the other day and one of the characters said vicissitude. Ah. Vicissitude. Do you know what it means? Have I you do. Used it? Oh. I don't know if I've <laughs> used it, but a big big shout out to Miss Misen, who was my sort of year eight um Actually, she was my English teacher in years seven, eight, and I think ten from memory, okay. um, because I'm pretty sure that that's where I first came across that word. It's been in my life for quite some years now, Valerie. I'm sorry. Do okay. I use it? No, not no. not often. Well, I have heard, of course, I knew the word before, but I never used it. So I was very impressed when they used it in Will and Grace. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means a change or variation or something different occurring in the course of something. So you might say the vicissitudes of the political landscape often leads to a slew of new legislation. Or if you're a Will and Grace fan, you might say the latest vicissitude in Jack's life occurred after he met Estefan. They got married. Right. Yes, there you go. There you go. (laughs) It is a great word. I like the sound of it and I like the look of it, you know, all those sort of I's and S's S's. and things. No, it's a good look, but, um, yeah, no, it's not one that you kind of drop into conversation. I've got a feeling we might have used it in relation to, you know, Jane Austen or something. Like I think suspect it was something to do with that. But anyway. Possibly. I can't quite remember. Let's move on. We've got a really cool interview this week. Who is our writer in residence? Okay, now I need to warn you up front, people, that you are going to need a cup of tea here or whatever your particular thing of choice is because this is a lengthy discussion and Mm. I think that you will agree with me hopefully at the end of it that it is most assuredly a worthwhile and lengthy discussion because I spoke to Amy Kaufman who um, is just phenomenally successful as an author of various series. She co-authors several series. She has a series of her own, um, which which is um, the second book of which is out now. It's the Elemental series. Um, And we had a terrific conversation about how it all happened um, and some really, really useful stuff about pitching your work. So I hope you guys have a really good listen to this and I hope you enjoy it. And, yes, it is a bit longer than usual. Amy Kaufman is a New York Times and internationally best-selling author of science fiction and fantasy for young and not-so-young adults. Last month, Scorch Dragons, the second book in her middle-grade fantasy series, Elementals, was released, and next month we'll see the Arise see the release of Aurora Rising, the first book in Amy's new YA sci-fi series, The Aurora Cycle, co-authored with Jay Kristoff. Welcome to the program, Amy, and sorry about the glitch in my radio intro there. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. All right, so we're going to wind the clock back into the sort of mists of time and go back to the beginning. When and how did your first ever book come to be published? Um, gosh, so so the first book that I had published was not actually completely the first book that I, I signed with my agent on. Mm. Uh, so I, I wrote for fun for a really long time and it 
genuinely didn't occur to me that authoring was was a job I could have. I was just writing stories for my friends and for myself and enjoying it. And I sort of got, you know, my million words or my 10,000 hours or however you like to think about it out of the way without ever angsting about what the outcome would be because I didn't ever think of there being an outcome. And um, my, my, one of my writing partners, Megan Spooner, uh, with whom I wrote the, the Starbound trilogy and Unearthed and so on, uh, was, was trying for publication. And she had... We had been working together on stuff purely for fun, purely because, you know, we were very close and we lived a long way away and sort of writing each other little bits of this story back and forth was one of the ways that we tended to our friendship. Um, meanwhile, she was writing another series and suddenly, you know, she signed with an agent and, and got a book deal on it. And I had always been an enthusiastic cheerleader in this. I'd been helping research agents and help, you know, almost like I was trying to get it done myself. And suddenly when it, when it happened for her and it was suddenly all real, reality, we thought, we sort of looked at each other and we, we looked at this thing we were writing together and we thought, oh, okay, I, I, I wonder if someone would want that as well. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but, but they wouldn't, but I wonder if they would, but they wouldn't. But what if they did? <laughs> uh, so, you know, we sort of started chipping away at that slowly. Uh, and in the meantime, I was writing a middle grade book and – what follows is a tale about what not to do. So for those um, those listeners who are aspiring writers, do not follow this path. It is not <laughs> a good idea. Uh, there, there used to be a, a, a website a, a long time ago. Uh, I think it was called the YA Oasis. And they would have competitions every so often where you would give perhaps, you know, I don't know, sometimes it would be a 100-character pitch of your book, sometimes it would be a two-sentence pitch, sometimes, you know, it would be a paragraph or whatever, and then there would be a prize. And the prize was always that an agent would uh, critique the first couple of pages of your manuscript. And they, they stressed you had to have a finished manuscript, but, you know, the truth was you, you always just gave the first couple of pages. And so I literally hit the end on this middle-grade book that I was writing one day and entered a competition on this web page the next day because I thought, well, I mean, it's, it is finished. Oh, I'm within yeah. the rules. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I only need page one, so <laughs> good to go. Uh, and then, you know, the, the results were announced and I wasn't one of the winners and I was deeply grateful because it turned out that for once the prize was the opportunity to query an agent who was usually closed for queries. And I thought, oh, my God, imagine if I had – being one of the finalists and I had been told to query this person and I didn't, I mean, it's finished, but I've literally just written the end. I haven't done anything with it. Uh, so I, you know, I counted myself lucky and walked away. And then two days later I got an email from the agent who said, I know I chose my winners, but I'm still thinking about your pitch and I would just love to see it. <laughs> and it was, oh, no. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I have 10 books under my belt now and I still don't have the language to discuss the unique combination of absolute delight and absolute terror that this moment induced yeah, wow. and this was I think uh, a Thursday morning and so I took a deep breath shot her back an email and said oh fantastic that's so wonderful I've actually just had a really helpful piece of feedback uh, from one of my critique partners so if it's all right to you uh, with you I might just you know polish that up over the weekend and get it off to you on Monday and she said oh wonderful thanks I'm looking forward to it I then phone didn't stick to work sorry if anyone I used to work with is listening <laughs> Um, and spent the next four days madly attempting to edit an entire middle grade book from start to finish. 
uh, which was, you know, an experience I will not forget in a hurry. Uh, but I had Meg, my running partner, she, we were flatmates at the time, so, you know, she would be critiquing things and passing them to me and I would be madly editing them and passing them back and, you know, my, my poor confused husband would be just bringing us food and say, I don't know what you're doing, but here, eat something. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, I sent it off to her and I had collapsed in a heap and then I, this little thought got in my head and I thought, oh, I mean, I know this is silly and it will never happen, but I didn't think she would pick me in the first place, so what if she offers? And... Then I haven't queried anyone else. And so I haven't had a chance to query some of the other agents I'm really interested in. So I thought, oh, I, be- I better just, you know, even though this is ridiculous, I better send off some more queries. Um, and one thing I have learned since then is that I'm good at writing a pitch. Right. I can write a pitch about a book that doesn't exist yet that will yes. sound exciting. Right. Uh, so, I wrote, so I wrote what turned out to be a great pitch, uh-oh, and sent it off and got you know 10 requests in in no time flat and so now i'm sending this barely edited book out to all these agents thinking to myself oh my god like they're going to remember me when i actually have a decent book what have i done this is a disaster and in the meantime in the background uh meg's agent says to her you know where where have you been because she stopped responding to everything because she's trying to give me first aid and she then she said oh you know her funny story you know my um my flatmates querying and i said well why hasn't it come to us and she and, and she said to her agent, well, you don't do middle grade. And he said, well, there's two agents here. My wife does middle grade. What are you doing? And so, you know, sent, sent it off to his wife. And we also sent the first 50 pages of this thing we were working on together. And a couple of days later, I, I had an agent. I, I mean, my number one choice was always this agency, but I didn't know I could send them middle grade. And the only excuse I can make for that ignorance is it was a long time ago and it was a little harder to find information back then than it is today. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I end up suddenly signed sort of for the middle grade, but, you know, her, her letter diplomatically said, but the YA is also great. What if we went out with that first? Which it took me some, some years to realise, oh, that's because the middle grade wasn't very good, but the YA was. Uh, so suddenly I'm signed for a book that only has 50 pages and off I go to write it. Right. Wow. I think that's possibly one of the more interesting origin stories we've had yet. <laughs> that's I mean, an extraordinary was, like, oh, correlation of events. Exactly. There's no one way. Yeah. There's no one story. Everyone I know has done it differently. And, you know, although in this case, you know, I guess I did go to that agency via someone I knew, none of the other agents who ended up involved in that situation knew who I was from a bar of soap. So... You know, and, and, and there were, I had a lot of them participating. So I think, you know, the myth that you have to know someone is very much that. Yes, I, yeah. But I also think that your point about writing a really great pitch is probably, you know, key to the whole mess in there somewhere buried beneath oh, all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it absolutely is. And I always say to people when they're querying, don't send all your queries out at once. Send out just a handful and, you know, like 10 at most, but, but, you know, and that's if you're querying the US where there's lots of agents, but preferably, you know, even fewer. And wait, and if you don't get requests, that doesn't speak to your manuscript, it speaks to your pitch. Yeah. Because that's what they're reading first. Yeah. And, you know, if your pitch is no good, you could have the best book in the world, probably no one's going to read it. So, you know, send out a few. If they, if they start requesting, you know your pitch is good, you can now proceed. But don't don't throw it all away on what might be a bad pitch. So let me ask you this then, Amy, why do you think your pitches are so good? Like what is it about your pitches that is making them stand out? Let's just go with the really easy question Mm. first, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) 
let me think. Well, so I mean, when I went when I wanted to learn to write a pitch, I, I went out there and and looked for people who could teach me, and because there's a lot of people who can. Uh, one fantastic resource um, is uh, a blog called Query Shark, mm. uh, which uh, you know used to be run by an agent, and she would take people's queries with their permission. They would submit them for this purpose, and she would just eviscerate them mm. in a post. And she would explain, not nastily, but just everything that was working, but all the things that weren't working. And you know, why th- why would you choose this word? This is a boring word. You could choose a much more interesting word to take its place and so on and so forth. And so I think for a start, looking at things like that and teaching yourself about the little things like making sure every word is the most exciting, gripping version of itself it can be was very helpful. Mm. Uh, and I also uh, read an ebook, which I'm, I'm not sure if it would be kind of still in date these days, but it was by Alana Johnson, who spells her first name beginning with an E, mm. and it was called uh, From the Query to the Call. And I suspect that probably the information around actually getting an agent probably is out of date. Yep. But what she does is give a formula for how to write a pitch and then dissects a whole bunch of, of great pitches and explains how they all fit okay. the same And I found it illuminating. And so these days when I sit down to write a pitch, the, the couple of rules that I sort of have in mind are that, first of all, it needs to follow the very basic concept of when incident happens to person, they must action before consequence. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's every story, yeah. right? Yeah. If you can't fit your story into that, that may point to a problem with your story. Right. Not not guaranteed, but if you don't have that, that basic sort of underlying structure, you may have a problem. And before that little sort of, you know, that little bit happens, maybe a sentence of world building, and then you think about the sandwich sentences which go at the top and at the bottom and the idea is that well written uh you should be able to take everything out except the first sentence and the last sentence and then be left with your elevator pitch so you know your and your elevator pitch i'm I'm sure everyone's familiar with it but is the idea it's it's your 30 second pitch you get in a lift with 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 an editor and they say what's your book about and you've got till the the fourth floor to tell them it needs to fit into that time and so, you know, it'll be something like so-and-so, you know, lives in a castle and began their day thinking this. Now, unless they can find the dark magician, they may never do whatever again. Right. And that's your elevator pitch. And then in the middle of it goes, you know, the other stuff, couple sentences of world building at most. And then when incident happens to person, they must action otherwise consequence. And in all of that, you're looking for the best, most active, most interesting language, and you're looking to stick around 200 words if you can. Yep. Not more than 250. Yep. Because and you don't tell the ending. I, I, I a lot of people think that they're writing a synopsis. Yep. And it's much better to think of it as back of the book copy. You're yep. writing the blurb. You're writing the blurb. Okay. Yeah. Excellent tips all around. Now, the thing I'm finding quite interesting about this too is that your first manuscript, the one that you were querying, you know, through the competition, mm-hmm. was middle grade because yeah. you then jumped off. Oh. Yeah, well, you then jumped off into YA in quite a serious mm-hmm. way. Um, and then, of course, with elementals, you know, you've come back to middle grade. But so was that YA voice, so it wasn't the YA voice necessarily that dragged you in straight away. It was more middle grade. Oh, I love middle grade books, and and I and I wrote a couple uh, for my NaNoWriMo novels before I ever 
got into YA. And I mean, I obviously I love writing YA because I've got what eight of them out already and a mm. bunch more to come. But I once I had published in YA, I felt it would be wise to establish myself there yeah. a little bit, yeah. and you know, to keep keep writing books for the people who had begun to pick up my books. And but I always knew that I was going to come back to middle grade without a question. And uh, my very first editor, the one who who bought these broken stars, my first book. Um, which I guess I never answered your question about how that got published. Uh, the very short answer is it, it, it went out on submission and two weeks later we had a fantastic auction that was happening at Thanksgiving in America with editors literally bidding as they got on. It's an extraordinary to- story, Amy, like really. Like that's kind of like what you've got there is the, you know, the story we read in the papers that makes everybody sit down to write a book is is that, isn't it? Like it's the kind of random pitch that becomes a random offer that (laughs) becomes a random auction that suddenly within two weeks is you know there you are I mean it's it's an extraordinary story I mean my my other writing partner Jay says I'm not allowed to tell the stories about how I sell my books because they make people want to vomit (laughs) uh (laughs) what do you mean that sounds like something he would say yes (laughs) it does doesn't it (laughs) but no no that those are his words but I mean the reason he says that is because I have been really fortunate and, you know, I've, I've never been on sub for a long time. Everything I've subbed has sold quite quickly. Mm. Um, but so, you know, I can, I can give sanctimonious speeches about the importance of writing the next thing while you're on submission and cultivating patience. But the truth is I haven't had to, so it's very easy for me to make those speeches. All right. Well, let's not do that. Um, (laughs) No, no. It does then make people want to vomit, I suppose. But, uh, but no, so my very first editor who acquired these broken stars, uh, also shared a love of middle grade with me and uh, she ended up leaving that publisher and moving to a new role at a, a different publisher uh, fairly early on in our process. Uh, but we stayed in touch because we genuinely liked each other. And in publishing, you know, you always meet people again. It's like musical chairs, yeah, you know, everyone's always moving is. around. So, you know, that like that's a piece of advice. Never burn a bridge because you will meet that person again. <laughs> Uh, but and never assume that they, that everyone doesn't talk to everyone else because they do, mm. and and that unhelpful or uncharitable thing you said will get back to the, the place that that it was said. Uh, so you know, be a pro. Mm. But she, we, I, you know, every so often when I was in New York on tour or something, she would, you know, she'd reach out and we'd catch up and we'd have lunch, and we both knew that we were just sort of staying in touch because maybe one day we'd be able to do something together, and. Then Harper in the US, which is where she then was, uh, had an opening for a new middle grade series. They, they just were getting in the process of wrapping up a couple of theirs and they sort of wanted something a bit more for the roster. And so she said, you know who's always wanted to write one of those because it wasn't something a lot of people knew about me. And um, next thing, my my dream opportunity to write a middle grade fantasy I'd been wanting to write was was presented to me. Oh, isn't that lovely? Look at you being presented. I'm, yeah, I'm with Jay now. I'm starting to vomit <laughs> slightly, just Sorry, a little. Know, right? Just quite, just just a little bit, yeah, but that's okay. But, but, you know, what I think you actually take out of that, though, is it is an effort to stay in touch with people and it is an effort to, you know, continue relationships and it is an effort to, you know, you, you get lucky when you make luck. Yeah, it's very true. And, I mean, you also get lucky when you get lucky. Make no mistake, there is an element of luck in everyone's publishing journey, but some of it you can manufacture. And in this case, you know, I positioned myself to become lucky by making sure people knew what I wanted to do, making sure they knew I would, I would find the time if the opportunity came up, you know, maintaining the relationship. And 
having a reputation for being a pro because there are authors who don't have that reputation and I can guarantee if one of their names got thrown in the ring, yeah, people would say, oh, well, that's, that's going to be too hard and you know it's going to be drama. Yeah, so, so be a pro. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the difference then between YA and middle grade fiction. So you said you love middle grade fiction. What is it about it that you love and what do you see as the difference between it and YA? Oh, I must say, the, the, for me, the difference is definitely a work in progress. Every time I think I've nailed down an answer, I find more exceptions. Yes. But part of what I love about it as a grown-up is that it takes me back in a way nothing else does to the way I used to feel when I read as a kid. Yeah. It, you know, I used to just, and I was under the impression until I thought about it again recently that my parents didn't know I was reading late at night. And I've now realised they almost certainly did. <laughs> I was not that wily, but I thought <laughs> I was doing it secretly. Uh, you know, and I would spend hours reading books at night and I'd be propped up on one side with one finger on the switch of the bedside lamp. Yeah. And, you know, the, the book in the other hand, reading, 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 ready to flick the bedside lamp off if I heard the kitchen door open. Yeah. And, and I'm sure my reflexes weren't that good. I know <laughs> they knew, but reading away. And it was just a way to completely escape into my own world, to, to go somewhere. That, and my real life was not bad. <laughs> I had a happy family and friends and it was all good. But I still loved the, the tingle that I got when I ran away to magical worlds was something that I couldn't replicate in any other way except reading those books. Okay. And so that's sort of what I think about when I'm writing my middle grade now is I, I look for all of those little things that give me a bit of a spine tingle and in they go. But I think in terms of the difference, um, I once heard someone say that in the middle grade you save the world and in YA you save yourself. Oh, yeah. And That's interesting. I, yeah, I sort of, I, I'm not sure it's 100% true, but I do like it. Yeah. I, I think that certainly in YA, even though you might technically be running around saving the world, you might technically be, you know, I don't know, defusing the bomb or, you know, overthrowing the empire or whatever, what you're, what you're really doing is figuring out who you are and, and what your place is yeah. in that world. Yeah. Um, uh, Sarah Reese Brennan, who is very wise, uh, says that young adult literature is the literature of transformation. Yeah. And that the reason that, that we like it as adults is because we're still transforming as adults. You know, whether it's your first day at school or your first day picking the kids up at a school where you don't know any of the other parents or whether it's your first date or your first date post-divorce or, you know, whatever it is, we're still going through these transformations. And I think in middle grade you certainly are thinking about who you are but, you know, and I mean, my series is certainly about that, but you are also, one, you are literally saving the world, and two, you're more just beginning to establish your place in the world and you're beginning to realise that you have a place in the world and that's something that can be influenced and it's something that can be adjusted and that your actions can affect what your place is in the world. That's a, I think that's an excellent description. Well done. <laughs> um, now, back next We'll you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you, you write in totally imaginary worlds, you sci-fi, fantasy, you know, you're diving into it. So rather than contemporary fiction, like you're not writing about like what it's like to be in high school today. Um, what yep. is it about though? Is it because of that escape aspect or the fact that you can kind of do what you want in the world? Like what is it about the, the, the totally imaginary world that you like so much? Oh, I mean, I think there are lots of factors. Uh, one is definitely the escape. It's a, that's what I grew up reading. And I actually do read a lot more contemporary now than I used to. But when I grew up, I wasn't, growing up, I wasn't interested in it. I wanted to read science fiction and fantasy. 
And so that is naturally where I go when I want to tell a story. Mm. Uh, I have such admiration for people who write contempt because if I want an encounter to feel dramatic, I can have, you know, a massive showdown that's a battle with guns (laughs) or magic and things exploding. If they want a showdown to feel devastating, they have got to find a way to make somebody walking past you in the school corridor and choosing not to make eye contact with you feel devastating. Yeah. And they don't have guns or magical battles or anything at no, their disposal. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, what they do is incredible and I'm not sure how to do it, to be honest. Uh, I have one book I'd quite like to write that's that's a contemporary that will be years away because I'm busy, but I spend a lot of time thinking now about how they achieve that stuff so that one day when I have the time I'll be ready. But um, I think I also, yeah, I really enjoy the the escape aspect. I really enjoy... As well that you can manipulate the world depending on what you want to do because each of my my books has a big question at the centre of it and it means that I can build and create a world that that allows me to centre the story around that question. Right. So you can manipulate the world to help facilitate the story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. So when you start your stories, when you start writing a new manuscript, are you starting with the world or are you start and the question or are you starting with the characters? Uh, usually I am I'm starting with the premise. So, which is kind of not not quite either. Yeah. I don't do a lot of world building up front. Okay. I I think about some premise that would affect the world. Like and it may be as simple as we are 500 years into the future and there is now an interstellar uh, military academy that's kind of like the UN right. and it's, it's, there, are, there are kids going there. That's, yeah. you know, that's the start of Aurora Rising or um, the start of these broken stars is, uh, you know, a, a soldier and the richest girl in the universe, essentially a space Kardashian, uh, <laughs> get shipwrecked. <laughs> she is. Space Kardashian, um, I love it. Um, you know, get shipwrecked together on a planet. Right. Something, you know, something that's quite broad. And then I might, the world might get built a little from that. And then I pause to ask myself, okay, who is the character in this story that I'm interested in? And for that, it's usually uh, who has the capacity to suffer the greatest pain and mm. who has the capacity to make the greatest change. Right. Both to themselves and to the world around them. And once I've sort of got that, then. I begin to build the world in ways that will challenge what I want that character to do. Okay. So it's sort of more like braiding them together rather than doing one and then the other. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Do you keep a a strict, like, have you got like a series manual where you keep all the rules and you keep all the, you know, like keep keep track of who's who and what's what and what town is this and where is that and it's 500 miles to here and do you keep all of that? Can I, can I ardently advise your listeners to do that? <laughs> because you don't, right? <laughs> because I don't. And it's the worst. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm terrible at it. I don't do it. And it's not like, I mean, I'm on, what, my fifth or sixth series now? I know better and I still don't do it. Yeah. And so what I do have is that, especially in the United States, when they copy edit you, they write what's called a style guide. Right. And it'll have a giant list of, especially in specfic, all the words you've made up. And how you like them used. So, for instance, in the Illuminae Files style guide, it will say, 
If the prefix is mag, as in magnetic, like mag boots or mag suit or mag gun or whatever, uh, no hyphen and no space. It just goes on the front of the word or whatever. <laughs> so they'll have all that stuff. And then they'll also have their list of characters for you and they'll, you know, what they look like and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, someone else does some of it for you, but there's still, gosh, there's a lot that I'm, I'm lucky that I have a really good memory. Yeah. So I generally, you know, I was copy editing the, um, the novella that we've written for the Illuminae files the other day, Memento, and I saw a character say something. I thought, ah, now in book one, he said something similar to someone and the words he used were this. And so I was able to go back and do a control F and find it and check he wasn't contradicting himself. Right. That, well, that's a, that's pretty good going, memory. Sorry. That's really good memory. Like most people by the time they get to book three aren't going to remember what's going on in book one necessarily. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of useful information in my life that I don't store that I wish I did, but that stuff I tend to keep. Excellent. So, so I'm not getting much of a sense here of you as a planner, uh, you know, someone who kind of, you know, writes out the spreadsheet before they begin writing the story and knows exactly what's going to happen by book three. But you must have an like, – like you're writing a pretty solid pitch here, so you've got a fairly strong idea of the scope of the work. Is that – is that yeah. a way of looking at it? Um, I mean, I sort of like the phrase uh, sort of headlights writing, right. which is you're driving along a dark road and you're only really in detail outlining as far ahead as your headlights illuminate. Right. So I will usually start a book with, if I'm writing, particularly if I'm writing with someone, we might have sort of 10 things that we think will happen that will sort of be the 10 points we'll hit along the way. Yep. And, and some of them might be they steal the thing. So how they're going to steal the thing, I have no idea. But, but you know, do we'll it, see. Yeah. But, but but they will do it, and that will lead to the next. You know, and then the next thing is they are being chased or whatever. You know, so yeah. when we get there, we'll figure out based on what's gone before what would be a cool way for them to steal the thing, what would develop their characters, what will create drama, etc. Yeah, um, I do do more when I'm on myself. Um, I will tend to. I sit there with a big bundle of note cards and. I write down everything I know happens in the story, which will generally be a bunch of sort of set pieces and then a bunch of tiny little details or moments. And I just sit there at my dining table and I just move them all around until they're in order that I sort of like. Mm. And that's my version of outlining. <laughs> well, that's, you know, dining I table think, style. That's good. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's that everyone has a different approach and I think so many writers – waste a lot of time by trying to follow the approach of someone who they feel is successful. Yeah. And, you know, because we all want there to be a formula. I mean, I want there to be a formula. That desire does not go away. But I think, you know, someone who they admire says, oh, I do it this way or I do it that way. And so they spend a lot of time trying to do that. And it's, it's not the way that suits them. And so therefore sort of nothing comes out of it. Yeah. So I think um, for me, I mean, one of the great disappointments of, having a longer term career as an author is discovering that I have to come up with a new system every series that I can't just replicate, you know, you don't just get the hang of it, unfortunately. But I think, yes, you know, some people just need to completely pants it and they just need to sit down and write once upon a time and see what happens. And for me, that's, that doesn't work at all because the uncertainty about what's happening really undermines my confidence. Yeah. Some people, you know, need a 35 page outline and they are going to get a better, tighter, stronger book because they do it that way. And for me, that doesn't work either because if there's not something to discover along the way, I get a bit bored. Yeah. And once I get a bit bored, I don't write as well. Yeah. It's not just about the quality of the experience. It's about I, I genuinely don't write as well because I'm not excited. Yeah. 
And so for me, it's, yeah, halfway. Halfway. Okay. Well, you have created a huge amount of work over the past few years, and I know you've got many manuscripts coming up. So I'm thinking that you must then have a fairly strict writing routine, at least, like some kind of, um, like you're not necessarily like strictly planning your stories out, but you are, Mm. what, sitting down at the same time every day or trying to hit a word count or what's the, you know, how does that work for Um, you? Yeah, I would say what I have is very strong self-discipline because I'm not, I generally just don't get to have a writing routine because, you know, at, at least two times a year I'm whipped away on tour and there are so many different, I, I'm always juggling at least three projects at once. Yeah. And so one of them I'll be editing and one of them I'll be drafting on and then another one out of absolutely nowhere, suddenly my copy edits that I didn't know were coming will arrive with, you know, these have to be back in five days and I'm supposed to drop everything and do that, but I can't because I owe my co-author a chapter. And yeah. I think if I think if one is having trouble writing, then a word count goal can be really useful, yeah. even if it's just, you know, 250 words a day because it's sort of like going to the gym. Like if you can just get there you'll probably stay for the whole workout. It's the getting there that's really hard or it's the getting your butt in the chair and starting to write. Uh, But otherwise I tend to do uh, time goals. So it tends to be four hours a day of really concentrated writing or editing or copy editing or what have you. And that means, you know, not looking at my email, not looking at other things, you know, not taking more than the break it takes to make a cup of tea. And just staying staying on task. And if I do more than four hours, uh, I, I find I will generally, whatever extra time I do, I will tend to lose it over the following days. So it tends not to be worth it. Yeah, okay. Um, there's a fantastic book by a guy called Cal Newport called Deep Work that talks about this uh, that really changed the way that I work. And one of the things I did when I read it was I started tracking how I spent my time for a little while just to see. Yeah. And I discovered that those days when I came out of it thinking, God, I'm a champion because I've just done, you know, eight straight hours of writing and staggered out with thousands of words and, oh, you know, quick, someone hang a towel around my neck and feed me an orange water and whatever. <laughs> I would simply, the extra four hours that I did that day, I would simply lose them off the next two or three days. Yeah. There'd, be, I'd, there'd be four hours less. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that something I can That actually makes perfect add. sense. You know, I've never thought does, of it like it? that, but it, it, that is exactly how it works. Yeah, and the thing is you can bet your bottom dollar that on the, the big eight-hour day I did that probably the last two, if not four hours, were of less good quality yeah, than the first four. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you know, sometimes emergencies forbid this and I find myself having to work all hours of the day and night, but most of the time I try really hard to do four solid hours of, of writing or editing and then I usually have enough to fill up the rest of the day with – you know, admin and what the, the stuff that comes from juggling multiple publishers in multiple countries and everyone's <laughs> questions and I'm trying to answer them and I'm trying to remember what I've already asked and all that. That's just a whole other job in itself, isn't it? Like I, I was thinking about that because I was looking at the number of publishers that you have for your various projects and just thinking, wow, mm-hmm. that is a lot of admin, a lot of admin. Well, it is, and I, I have a very strong policy that I never tell a publisher I can't do something because I'm doing something for someone else. Yeah. It's a little bit like saying to one boy that I can't go out with him on Thursday because I'm already going out with another boy. No one wants to hear it. <laughs> no one wants and, to hear that. And the thing, well, and also it's not their problem. Yeah. When I made a contract with them, I told them I could do the work and yeah. they don't want to hear that I can't do the work because I'm doing someone else's. Yeah. So, so true. you know, 
Now, you touched on this a little bit before, but you've actually worked with a couple of, of co-authors, including Jay Christoph, mm-hmm. who we actually interviewed in episode 127 of our um, uh, podcast, and Megan Spooner. Yeah. How does mm-hmm. that process work? Do you work the same way with both of them? Are you swapping chapters or like is there a – or different with both of them? Uh, no, it's, it's actually remarkably similar because the two of them are remarkably similar personalities, oh, which right. That's interesting. A, a lot of people don't expect uh, because they don't present as particularly similar people right uh, but they have very similar personality types and very similar work styles I still remember the first time they met I had wanted to be there because I sort of had in my head oh my goodness you know what if they don't like each other <laughs> and then I'm gonna have this issue where I don't know like I don't want to talk to to one of them about the other one because there's bad blood or so I, like I really I you know I have a, a vivid imagination and I put it to good use imagining all the ways this could go wrong uh, and then I, I don't uh, something like my flight got delayed and so the two of them got into New York a day ahead of me and ended up going out with a bunch of authors for dinner and karaoke and getting wildly drunk together and having a fabulous time. And I'm getting text messages at 3 a.m. from Jay going, Meg's awesome, and from Meg going, oh, my God, I'm meant to be meeting an editor in five hours. Jay's the worst. And I'm thinking, <laughs> but she's still there, which means it's where she wants to be. Yeah, <laughs> and, so true. Um, you know, and so the two of them got on like a house on fire, which was great. But they're both, they both tend to think the same way. They both tend to even just brainstorm and work the same way. Uh, and so our styles are pretty similar. We we get together to brainstorm what's going to happen next. We divide up what will go into what chapter. We pass it back and forth. We edit each other as we go. And I think there are many ways to co-author and this is just mine, but for mine, it's deeply collaborative and involves a lot of respect for the other person. Hmm. That you know, I th- because I mean, in some co-authoring arrangements, and the participants are very open about this. It's not some dirty little secret, but there might be a, a better-known author and a lesser-known author, and the better-known author might sort of outline the story. The lesser-known author might draft it, and then the better-known author might, you know, come through and kind of edit it and, and stylize it and so on. And provided that's what everyone volunteered for and wants to be doing, that's great, no problem. Uh, but the way I'm working with my co-authors is very much. We, lo- we each love what the other one does, and so we're trying to put more of the other one's voice in. Right. So, off, you know, like I'll be the one or they'll be the one fighting for the other one's joke, you know, or the other one's line saying, you know, you can't cut this, this is great. And I think, I think it is important that if you're going to write with someone, it needs to be someone whose voice you actually want to be present in your book. Yeah, definitely. What is it that you like so much about writing with other people? Like it's interesting that you have two co-authors and then, of course, the Elemental series, which is your middle grade series, is just you. Um, so different experiences. Actually have more than two. I'm just not allowed to talk about it yet. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> at the moment I have two public co-authors. But there will maybe others. Maybe. Mm. Um, but, uh, I mean, gosh, there's so much I love about it. I mean, for a start – Writing is a very solo sport yeah. and you often have to get quite a long way into a book before you can ask anyone what they think about how it's going. Whereas when you're co-authoring, every chapter you write, you send it off and when it comes back, not only are there helpful comments all over it, but there's a whole other chapter that you didn't write. So that's nice. Yeah, that is nice. And it's, you know, if you ever get stuck, there's someone who knows the book as intimately as you do, who's ready to brainstorm with you, who can help. And, and, and they'll often take 30 seconds to do it. You know, whichever one of us is stuck in a hole, we'll explain it at length and say, and so that's how I've gotten myself into this unfixable situation. And the other one will go, what if you did this? 
the first one will go, ah, yes, yes, right, okay, bye, I'm off. That's, that's all I needed. So I think having someone who's intimately familiar. And then there's also, I mean, I think anyone who writes, there are very few generalizations about all of this, but I think one that you can tend to make is that at some point when you are writing a story, you will have a moment when you think, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. And, in fact, I am terrible. And, in fact, everything's terrible. And, the whole world is and, terrible. <laughs> yes, it's all terrible and I have to start again, uh, if I even can, because who knows if I even have any talent. And I I'm only I laughing because I've been there, right? <laughs> right. And, I mean, the thing is, I think if you never have those moments, that's probably a bad sign. Yeah, I agree. That because, you know, the doubt and the worry is what keeps you sharp and makes you keep sort of striving to do better and if you're not striving to do better, then you're not improving. So I, I think, you know, a little, little, like, you know, overwhelming doubt, terrible, but a little doubt, not so bad. But when you're co-authoring, you can have moments when you think, oh, my goodness, that chapter has not worked at all. But you, you never think that the whole book is terrible because you love the bits the other person wrote. Yeah, okay. And, so you know, it's only you your start... bits that are terrible. <laughs> and that's much more helpful. And if you start to go badly off the rails, they'll sit you down and go, no, no, let me tell you why it's working, you idiot. And that's helpful too. Yeah, okay. All right, so okay. let's talk about Elementals because you're on your own with this. This is you writing your stuff, doing your thing. And the new yeah. one that is out is called Scorch Dragons. So book one is called is. Ice, Wolves. Ice Wolves. Book two yeah. is called Scorch Dragons. Now, this is the middle book of a planned trilogy. And I just right. need to ask you, so first of all, tell us a little bit about it and then tell us whether you agree with me that the middle of any story is the most difficult bit to write and whether this was more of a challenge than the others. I'm just going to throw Ooh. two at you at once, okay. Seth. Uh, so in terms of what it's about, it's a little bit uh, – so I when, it, when I teach workshops, which is unfortunately not very often anymore, we often talk about a thing called the uh, – that I call anyway, the shut up and take my money list. <laughs> it's the list of stuff that if, it, if that is on the cover of a book or the poster for a movie or, you know, you see it on a, an ad for a TV series or something, it's shut up and take my money. I will I go toward that thing instantly. Right. And the truth is probably whatever I'm reading, watching, whatever, only really even needs to be like seven out of ten good and I'll love it because I will forgive a lot of things because it's got all the, the stuff I love in it. Yep. Yeah. And so Ice Wolves is, is – one of my shut up and take my money lists. So, you know, it's got uh, shapeshifters, it's got wolves, it's got dragons, it's got twins, it's got a sort of a medieval style city with cobblestone streets, it's got uh, magical inventions, it's got sort of a very Icelandic landscape that I got to go to Iceland for a month to research, which was amazing. Um, no. <laughs> it was, yeah, us, us in a camper van for a month just every day saying, look, I know we said this yesterday, but actually this is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen wow. over and over again. Yeah. Uh, you know, we felt like the famous five because we just, you know, like we were quoting Anne constantly, you know, food always tastes so much better out of doors. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> picnicking on, on mountains constantly and just having a great time. But, you know, and it's got little things in it as well. Like it's got, you know, sibling relationships and it's got, I mean, tiny things like runes. I think runes are cool. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, it's got, you know, moment, like big feasts at school and, you know, trips to the library to figure things out. And So just every single thing know. that you've ever loved, you've put into a story. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And which is why I have so much fun writing them. <laughs> 
Excellent. So even the middle of this story, Scorch Dragons, was not a challenge because it was full of all the things that you love. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I think and I I think that one of the things I've definitely learned about writing series is there is always a temptation when you think of a cool thing to save it for the end or to save it for a later book. Mm. And instead, these days what I do is whatever the biggest, baddest, most awesome thing I could think of to do, I put it in the book I'm in right. because something else will come along that is even bigger and badder and more awesome for the final book. Yeah. And there's also no point in hoping people hold on for the final book to enjoy your big set piece that you've been waiting three books to do yeah. if you've lost them along the way. So, you know, ideally what you want is in book one for all of the crises they face to feel very real and big and terrible. And then in book two, you sort of want to look back on those things that genuinely felt, you know, earth shattering at the time and think, oh, my sweet summer child, you know, <laughs> that was nothing. Now look at this. And then you want to do it again in book three. So, so you're just taking the stakes up every single time, more and more, yeah. as much as you can. Yep, and it's it's up to future Amy to figure out how to raise them above what I've currently done. There's always a way. Poor future Amy. Um, all right, so let's just <laughs> let's just switch gears a little. We talked a little bit before about you know the various you know juggling various publishers and things. You also have a huge social media following on Twitter and Instagram, which for a YA author is is a great thing. Is that something that you have to have to actively plan for within your working day? Are you actively slotting in now? I must respond and engage on social media into your day. Um, I, what I have to actively plan for is making sure it doesn't take too much time mm. because it will take as much time as I give it. So I actually, I use, um, Chrome as my browser and I have an extension called stay focused and I give stay focused a small list of websites, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and collectively across the whole day, it allows me 20 minutes on those websites and then they all get blocked. Wow. So that encourages me. I don't have time to waste. I don't have any of them on my phone except Instagram because you have to use Instagram on your phone. Mm. And it means that I get 20 minutes a day. And that means I've got time to quickly bob onto Facebook, which is my only sort of personal social media. Mm. And, you know, look at my cousin's babies. Yeah. And, which you know, but as for someone who lives in a different country to most of their family, that's priceless. Yeah. And then I jump across to, to Twitter and Instagram and I don't scroll. I don't sit there letting all the clickbait make me angry. I just respond to things and get off. And if something big is happening, like, you know, we've launched a book or a pre-order campaign or something that, you know, I think, no, no, legitimately today I should spend an hour responding and retweeting and helping hype things because today that is a part of my job. Yeah. I can adjust the timer and then just put it back again when I'm done. Yeah. But I think it, I, you know, I think sometimes people say, oh, you know, social media doesn't sell books. And I actually don't think that's right. I think it's great, but you've got to keep your use proportionate. And, you know, we only have so much willpower and so much decision-making power available every day. Yeah. You know, the famous example of that is um, Barack Obama wearing the same, you know, suit every single day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same things because we've only got so many decisions we can make and so much willpower we can exercise. And I don't want to spend it on getting off Twitter. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, I like if I can outsource that bit of willpower to a program, which I can, then I can save it for the, you know, things things that no one else can make happen except me, like getting my butt in the chair to start my writing session. Write the book. Um, yeah. So interesting on that because I, I did see a Twitter thread from you last week about passionate reader responses to a glitch with mm. access to a pre-order. Um, yeah. You are, well, you, you know, you appear to be very accessible to your readership um, through those platforms. And are those boundaries sometimes difficult to manage? 
look, I think on the whole it works okay. And I do try really hard to be really accessible because I'm deeply aware of what I owe my readers. Mm. And I think, you know, especially with some of my books, especially with, say, Illuminae, it was a word-of-mouth book. I mean, and that might sound like a funny thing to say because I know people will have seen a big publicity campaign for it. But when I'm touring, every second person coming up in the queue is someone coming up with their friend and pointing to their friend saying, she made me read it. She just kept yelling at me till I read it (laughs) because it's an unusual looking book. Yeah. And so having someone open it and show it to you and talk to you about it is how a lot of people get into that book. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I'm deeply aware and so is Jay that word of mouth is what carried that book to where it was. And, you know, my first book, These Broken Stars, it hit the New York Times bestseller list 13 months after it came out and nothing special was happening that week. It was a word of mouth hit and it was just very unusual. And so I'm aware that, you know, I'm not just giving something, you know, I think I sometimes I hear people say, you know, that, you know, if a reader pays you for a book, then what you owe them is a book and absolutely nothing more. And I don't know that that's strictly true. I think you have to acknowledge what, what the readers do for you. Yeah. But there is also a boundary because I do also stop being a writer and go away and, you know, yeah. be a family member and be me and yeah. do my own thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And we had, a, we had a bit of a, a brief blip on those boundaries that led to the Twitter threading question. Yeah, but I and think it's the first time I've ever said something like but that. But I actually think, and the the other thing I found, because the other thing I found about interesting about that was that that was retweeted into my feed, um, and the amount of support that you got around oh, that yeah, particular absolutely. thread was fascinating as well. So it, it kind of works both ways, I guess, as far as the the um, as far as it all goes. But it is something, uh, particularly I think, why the YA community can be very vociferous and I think that it's something mm-hmm. that some you know it can can be a little bit daunting uh for some YA authors so that's why I was just interested in your thoughts on that absolutely mm. well and I mean I think I guess so got listeners who who perhaps pick this up in a year and are thinking what on earth what are, are they talking about, about? <laughs> no um so I guess the you know the the 30 second version is that I mean, we're all familiar with the idea that suddenly now in the last few years, we, we all have access to creators in a way we never did before. That, you know, growing up, you know, you'd write a fan letter to someone, but you'd never think that they would write back. Mm. You, you just hope that maybe they instead of an assistant would read it. And suddenly we all have nonstop access to creators, but we haven't yet had time to develop any kind of etiquette or rules around how we do it. Mm. And so it can sometimes be a bit of a free-for-all, which, you know, I feel like this, the Star Wars movies are the greatest example of this, but mm. there are plenty. And so what happened in our situation was that uh, with Aurora Rising coming out next month, our publisher decided that they would um, make available a, a novella, which is set in the Illuminae universe, uh, that so if you pre-ordered Aurora Rising, you could go and upload your receipt and you you know, six weeks after publication, you get posted this novella. And this was available from our US publisher to people who bought the US copy, uh, but it was not available from our Australian and UK publishers for very good reasons that involve, you know, they're smaller, they're in a smaller market, they have a smaller budget, they made other choices about how to handle their pre-orders, all completely legitimate. But the international readers who could not access the novella were (laughs) very distressed about this. And they were not backward in coming forward. And... I mean, you know, to to give an example, the sort of language that I heard over just a few days was that I had, uh, I had personally uh, stabbed readers in the back, slapped them in the face, uh, devastated them, betrayed them, 
yeah. forgotten about the people who had supported me, forgotten where I'd come from. So yeah. very strong stuff. And yeah. I would wake up to this every morning. Uh, and another magical ingredient in all of this is that I'm currently uh, seven and a half months pregnant. Yeah. So it's not that hard to make me cry right now. No. <laughs> uh, I am, you know, I, I hate to live up to generalizations, but I'm a little bit, little bit more emotional right now than normal. Um, so I, I sat with it for a while because I have not really seen a creator respond to this sort of thing and have it go well. Yeah. It tends to blow back somehow. Yeah. And eventually I thought to myself, okay, hang on a minute. One, I've seen this a lot. I've seen authors whose covers get changed halfway through a series or who have a pre-order situation like us or who tour to certain cities but not others. I've seen them cop this kind of feedback and I've seen it be deeply distressing but they don't say anything because they don't know what to say. And secondly, you know, this is hitting me in the face every morning when I wake up and I don't think it's reasonable and I actually don't think anyone involved in this desires that I should have to somehow emotionally stop crying and pull myself together every morning before I can work. Like I don't think the people who are doing this are going for that outcome. No. Uh, I just don't think they've thought about it. And then I thought, thirdly, I have literally a master's degree in conflict resolution <laughs> and a decade as a mediator behind me. <laughs> I can do so this. So I reckon if, if anyone's got a crack at maybe having this conversation and have it go well, I'm, I'm better qualified than, than most to do it. So I thought, all right. I'm going to have a go. So I just wrote a very brief Twitter thread that was as gracious and courteous as I knew how to make it without stepping back from my point that sort of said, like, guys, one, authors don't make these decisions, so you're actually shouting at the wrong people. But two, can I also suggest that no one should be shouted at in this way about anything? And can I also say, you know, if you wouldn't say it to my face, don't leave it in my mentions, don't leave it in my DMs. And if you would say it to my face, check yourself and step back, please. I explained that I was, you know, pregnant and exhausted and then acknowledged that I completely get that this, these howls of rage are coming from a place of passion for the books and it's very important not to forget that and it's important to acknowledge it, but that perhaps we could all speak going forward in a way that reflects the affection we have for each other rather than, you know, sounding as furious as we are. And I got oh, gosh, well over a 1,000 responses in the first day. Wow. Uh, every, every single one positive, without exception. Uh, not even people saying things like, oh, you're right, no one should shout at you, however it is really terrible what you've done. <laughs> Just nothing. I didn't mean to offend you, nothing. but. <laughs> but you are awful. Yeah, literally not even those. Nothing. Wow. Just positivity. Yeah. And what I've and – I, and I think a lot of people sort of had a moment, you know, because I said, you know, we all forget sometimes that there's a person on the other end, but guys, I'm a person. Yeah. So and true. and you're making that you made this person cry, so stop. <laughs> and and I, I honestly I think people just hadn't just hadn't thought about it. No. And when they did, and, and, and they were genuinely speaking out of a place of love for, you know, a thing they were a fan of. And so as it, it all just screeched to a halt. It all just stopped. Yeah. And, you know, everyone started just sort of either trying to figure out a solution to get the novella or just didn't direct it to me, which is all I'm asking. That's right. You've got you don't books have to, to love us. <laughs> well, yeah, the thing is, they don't all have to be happy if they're not happy. Like, I'm not asking them to fake it. I'm just saying don't scream at don't me. Don't shout at me. Yeah, fair enough. I didn't do it. <laughs> so. Oh, the things that, yeah. you know, you know, those authors that you read when you were, you know, under the covers at night there, they didn't have to manage all that, did they? They did not have to do this. <laughs> I'm telling you that much. All right. Um, well, well sorry. Stop. 
Like, I actually think this is really important stuff, though, because, you know, like I said, we don't have any rules or etiquette around how we interact yet, but this is how we make them. That's right. Well, we this have to learn next- from each other, don't we? We have to learn from the responses and we have to learn as to how we respond. So I think it's important that, um, that everybody take a step back and have a think about it occasionally. Right, and it's okay if you have to be prompted. We've all had stuff in our lives where we've had to be prompted to think about what we've just said. Yeah. And, I, you know, if the next time this happens, someone can point back to this conversation and say, hey, guys, remember this conversation? It's happening here now too. Then, you know, maybe that makes it a little easier. Yeah, see, that Masters in Conflict Resolution has come in handy. There's a reason that in the middle of Scorch Dragons, there's literally a chapter where the kids kind of have a lesson in conflict theory. <laughs> Use what you know. That's what they say, don't they? <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. Um, so thank you so much for your generous time today. I'm going to finish up by asking you for your three top tips for writers. Okay. Um, let me think. Okay. First tip is I'm sure people will have heard before, but I feel really strongly about it, uh, which is you need to read really widely. You yeah. cannot just read, you know, what you read. So what you write um someone i'm having a moment where i can't decide if it was tolkien or peter beagle one of them though uh said <laughs> talk about the idea I, I know not the same thing oh, i don't yeah, know why mm-hmm. okay <laughs> but, um, uh baby brain can i blame it but yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the idea of creative compost that everything that you sort of see and read and listen to and absorb falls to your mental forest floor and what you write grows out of it and if you only read the thing that you write, then you end up sounding like everybody else because you're cooking with the same ingredients. But, you know, if you want to learn about how to write something scary, read horror. If you want to learn about relationships, read romance, you know, read, read, read all this stuff that is not your thing. Uh, second piece is finish your work mm-hmm. because the number of if, – if you finish your book, it will, by dint of having an ending, an ending of any level, it will be better – than 99% of books out there Mm. is done. And the number of people out there with a perfect first chapter or a perfect first three chapters who never finish a book is staggering. Mm, So true. I also think of the first draft as sort of in the first draft, you're just putting the skeleton together. And then once you've got that, you can decide, okay, are the arms the right size for the body that I've made? And, you know, does it look the way that I want it to look? then you can go back and start putting on muscle and skin and deciding what colour the hair should be and stuff. But if you spend, you know, your entire time just crafting one perfect hand and getting the fingernails just right and all the rest of it and then you realise it's the wrong scale for the rest of the body that you're about to do, one of two things will happen. Either you will have to throw away a giant amount of work that you just did or worse, you won't throw it away because of your sunk costs. Mm. And you will end up with this thing in your book that shouldn't be there because you couldn't bear to get rid of it. So finish the whole thing first. Yep. And my third one is, I guess, a sort of more a piece of micro advice, uh, which is something I've been practicing recently is I feel like we all think the word trope is a dirty word. Mm. Like, Oh, it was so tropey, you know, it, it, and and what we mean there is it was terribly stereotypical, but tropes actually work for a reason. It's kind of like when you go to Paris, you go see the Eiffel tower for a reason. Mm. Like, yes, else does it but it's great that's why you go and tropes are you know they're they're beaten parts for a reason and so not my advice is not you know go out and write the tropiest story you know how it is when you're a bit stuck and you're not quite sure what would happen next 
kind of close your eyes and think, okay, if this was a movie, what would happen next? And you almost always know the answer. You'll almost always know that, oh, there would be a heist now or there would be a fight or they would sneak away or, you know, whatever. And think about how similar things you love have handled it and make a list of as many things as you can think of that would happen if you were using, you know, all the tropes that go with this thing. And then from those, you can take one and just bend it a little to the left or combine it with something else. And that can often be a way to break a deadlock. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Amy. It's been such a pleasure. Um, readers can visit Amy's website at amykaufman.com, A-M-I-E-K-A-U-F-A-M-A-N. And I will put the link in the show notes. Um, but I so appreciate your um, generous time and the, the information that you've given us today. It's been great. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There we go, Amy Kaufman. That was really cool, Al. Um, so much information, so many insights. Well, the thing I found, look, I, as I said, um, I mentioned at the top of the interview, the the pitching aspect of it, the fact that she was willing to, like, I was like, what makes a good pitch? And mm. she broke it down. You know, this is what you need. This is the formula. This is how it works. Um, I think is invaluable information for uh, for any any author. Like for me, mm. I was, yeah, you know what, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, very, very worthwhile having listened to that one, I think. Yeah. Now, also, just a reminder to all our listeners, we're having So You Want to Be a Writer live. It's one of we the are. official, yeah, it's one of the official events of the Vivid Sydney program, and it's going to be held on the top floor of the Museum of Contemporary Art. I keep saying top floor. I do think it's the top floor, but it's definitely being held at the Museum <laughs> of Contemporary Art. So when we find sure... out we're in the basement. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So make sure you grab your tickets, go to the Vivid Sydney website and search for one of our names or search for So You Want to Be a Writer. And tickets are already flying off the shelves, the I know, virtual it's exciting. shelves. I like to yes. watch them fly. So, you yes. know, buy one so it can fly towards you. Because it'd be great. We're going to have a panel apart from Al and myself. There's going to be Candace Fox, the uh, crime and thriller author who co-authors many of her books with James Patterson and debuted on uh, as number one on the New York Times bestseller lists. She also writes standalone books and she's just such a hoot. And mm. there's also Pamela Freeman who writes as Pamela Hart, uh, writes historical fiction as Pamela Hart, and she's a font of information, all things to do with writing fiction. So make sure you come join us. There'll be plenty of opportunity to hang out and ask questions and stuff like that. Mm. All right, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, well, the school holidays is what I'm doing in the coming week. Um, in very exciting news, though, I'm going to Blues Fest at Byron Bay. Right. Shall what? we all just take a moment? <laughs> I know. I know. I am. I'm very, very excited. I'm going to see 
Iggy Pop and I'm going to see Nora Jones and I'm going to see like um it's it's a huge lineup and I um, am very excited about it. Book Boy is also excited. My husband is very excited and my youngest is saying, can I stay home, please? So, <laughs> so that should be fun, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. All right. Um, well, I'm not going to Blues Fest. Uh, I'm going to be staying here and enjoying the last remnants of summer, which I hope actually lasts for a while because I just love the warmer weather. I know you do. Mm, anyway. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on, where am I? Facebook and Instagram <laughs> at Alison Tate Writer. <laughs> I was on autopilot. <laughs> okay. Um, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and uh, over at ValerieKoo.com. But, of course, make sure you join us both in the Facebook group, which is the So You Want to Be a Writer uh, podcast community. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free. We'd love to have you in there. It's an awesome group of people. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Procrasty Pup is also barking goodbye. I hope you can hear him. Bye, Procrasty Pup. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.